Thank you for reading that for us, Joe. Um, should we come and pray to our fathers as we approach this? Father, we read these, these astounding words that through Jesus Christ, we have access to you by the Spirit. Father, please might you impress upon us just how incredible it is what you've done for us at the cross is. Thank you that you are a God who desires to show to us the incomparable greatness of your grace. That that is how you have acted in history. That is what you desire for us as those who are united to Christ. Would you show us the reality of where we now stand because of him? Might our hearts be thrilled to rejoice in Christ together? Might we understand the incredible differences that makes to life as a community? And might we do these things to your praise and glory, we pray. Amen. Well, I wonder whether uh, you've had this experience. Uh, imagine you've gone climbing somewhere. Uh, you've gone up a mountain, okay? And, and I just imagine, for argument's sake, I'm sure you'd find it very easy to bounce up a mountain. But you've you found it hard. It's tough work. Uh, you get to the top. Uh, you're feeling maybe a bit exhausted. Um, what, is one, what are one of the first things that you might do when you reach the top? Now, it might depend on what sort of person you are. Maybe you just collapse at the top of the mountain, uh, get your breath back. I'm guessing that most of us would start to look around, wouldn't we? We'd want to take in the breathtaking view, hopefully, if we've climbed a nice mountain, that we're able to see. But what do you do after you start looking at the view? This might be more revealing of myself. Uh, maybe you don't do this. But the next thing I want to do is I want to look and see where is it we came from. I, I look in the distance. Where Ah, oh, there's our car in the distance. Ah, oh, there's the gate that we came through to get into the field to come up this path. Now, why would you do that? Well, it's to appreciate, isn't it, how far you've come. Often as you look back, you think, wow, that looks amazingly small and far away. Now, obviously, when we're climbing up a mountain, that then makes us feel good about ourselves. Look at how well I've done, how far I've been able to climb. Well, in Ephesians, this chapter is sort of doing that, except it's not us that's walked up the mountain. Paul wants to point us back to look at where we've come from, to remember who we were in order to realize and appreciate where we now stand, not because of our hard work getting up the mountain, but because of God's grace. Uh, and so last week we saw in verses 1 to 11, uh, 1 to 10, uh, we saw how God has reconciled us to himself in Christ. We have been raised with Christ. Once, when we look back, we were dead in our sins. We were deserving of God's wrath and his judgment. But now we are wonderfully at his right hand in Christ. We've been raised. We've been forgiven. Uh, it's focused on that kind of vertical healing of a relationship between us and God. And yet now it's as if kind of Paul sort of reorientates us and looks at what's happened from a different perspective. Uh, as we thought already in our service, there is a, a horizontal dimension built into what God was doing at the cross. Uh, once we were outsiders, but now we have been made part of God's new creation people. Uh, that's what we are uh, thinking about. That is at the very heart of why God sent Jesus. Now we're looking at verses uh, 11 to 18 in particular this week. We're going to kind of finish off 19 to 22 next week, which is really where this is heading to. Look at uh, verse 19. Uh, Paul's point is you're not outsiders anymore. Now you've become fellow citizens 
You're no longer strangers. You're members of God's household. You're, in fact, a temple in which God dwells. We're going to spend more time thinking about that next week. Uh, But today, we are going to fix our eyes on what we once were in order to appreciate where we now stand. Uh, So firstly, first for us to see, uh, we are to remember that we were outsiders. Look at verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcision by those who call themselves the circumcision. Now, Paul here is speaking to this Ephesian church, and the majority of them are Gentiles. That means they're not descendants of Abraham. They don't have a bloodline back to him. Uh, They were uncircumcised. Now, circumcision was a sign that the men in the community bore. Uh, That was the kind of cutting away of the foreskin from their private parts. Uh, Not very pleasant. But uh, that was a sign that they belonged to God, that they were consecrated to him, that they were trusting in his promises. It became a sort of an outward marker. Hey, we are that special people that God has chosen. By contrast, these Ephesian believers... And in fact, most of us, we were the uncircumcised. Now, I wonder if you notice in your Bibles, you've got these uh, things in in quotes, the uncircumcision on the circumcision. Um, Actually, elsewhere, Paul has more to say about what's really going on with those covenant signs. Actually, he's not endorsing how the Jews are treating this sign. They're actually using this to look down on the Gentiles. This is a way of being derogatory. This is like slang language. They're the uncircumcised. They're the ungodly. They're the the kind of polluted people. We are God's special people. We've been given God's law. We know his commands. We live in a way that pleases him. They're filth. We we keep away from them. In fact, a a Jew wouldn't want to eat dinner with a Gentile. And that gives you a picture, really, of what this sort of relationship between Jew and Gentile looks like. Stay away. Now, Paul says, remember, that is who you were. You were called uncircumcised. You were looked down on. But he goes on, verse 12, remember that at that time, you were separate from Christ. Now, given what we've looked at in the book of Ephesians so far, we get to a phrase like that, that should be ringing alarm bells. We've seen how glorious it is that everything that comes to us, comes to us because we're connected to Christ To be separate from Christ, that is incredibly bad news. They were separate from Christ. The Messiah wasn't their Messiah. Uh, Jesus wasn't sent primarily to the uh, Gentiles. Actually, it was the Jewish Messiah. They were the ones who were looking forward to this king. Uh, Not only that, you were excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise. You were not part of God's people. You were outsiders. You had no rights and responsibilities to belong. You couldn't enjoy the various promises that God made to his people. That's uh, what covenants were. They were a way of God promising certain things to his people with certain kind of requirements built into them. They couldn't enjoy any of that. That was to the Jews. Now, I wonder whether we, we find it hard to sort of get the magnitude of this because we're in such a sort of individualized Western culture. And when we think about religion, we think about me and God. You know, religion's this private thing. It's a connection. 
And yet God has made us to be social beings. He's made us to live in a community. And God's chosen the Old Testament not to simply initiate a load of relationships with individuals. No, his plan was to to make and establish a community, a people, and he made promises to that people. If you are therefore not part of that people, that's bad news. Uh, God's law was meant to be a, a way of establishing a kind of a safe and flourishing life with God ruling over the people. It was meant to bring a harmony to community life. He gave celebrations for them to enjoy and feast together, delighting in what God had done. He gave them promises to encourage one another with and spur one another on. At God's plan for his promises, they, they always take place in the context of a people. Uh, not only that, but what is at the very heart of the Jewish people? It is the temple, wasn't it? The very place that God promised to dwell in their midst. Paul says, remember, you are outsiders. Uh, it made me think... Um, I guess we've seen it in the news, lots of stories of of people looking to try and get into countries like our own, going across on boats, desperate to be citizens of a country that they they hope will will kind of be much better than where they're coming from. Can you imagine what it would feel like to be in that situation, wanting to go in and not having access? That gets us just a tiny bit towards what's going on here. He's saying, look, remember, you were outsiders. You had no right to enter You had no right to claim those promises as your own. And so, end of verse 12, you are without hope and without God in the world. No hope and no God. No access or experience of a relationship with him. And therefore, no hope. Christian hope is always a confidence in what God is able to do. It's not wishful thinking. There needs to be a foundation to it. And if you don't have God, then you have no hope. Yes, we might think we have hope. Yes, in fact, we might think we have God's. Things that we think were going to satisfy us and look after us and protect us. But Paul says, no, you didn't. You had none of it. Well, I wonder, what is this what we expect Paul to say? You see... I guess those of us who know a bit of the Bible story know that God's plan was never just for the Jews to receive these promises. His plans were always much bigger. And yet Paul doesn't go there. He he wants to really rub it in, as it were, that they were outsiders. And that means us. We were outsiders. See, I wonder whether we can act as if we're somewhat entitled. Can we act as if we're entitled to God's salvation? to God's promises. Uh, we were reading those um, Harry Potter books uh, recently, or at least the first one, and uh, you know, there's that really horrible but like, amazing depiction of Dudley as this like, ugh, horribly entitled child, all about me, you know, complaining that he got one less present last year for his birthday. It's an ugly picture entitlement, isn't it? Someone who thinks they deserve something. Entitlement kills all thanksgiving. See, I think Paul wants us to see how unentitled we were, how far away we were, in order for us to really get how incredible it is that we've been brought close, that we've been brought near. See, we might not really think in those categories of Jew and Gentile, 
But actually, a lot of us here are, are privileged in that we've come from Christian families and Christian backgrounds. It would be just so easy for us to assume that kind of God had to make promises to include us in his people. No, he didn't. Actually, even the Jews, they really couldn't claim that, that God had to choose them. No, we were outsiders. But I wonder whether, secondly, this challenges how important we see it is to actually belong to God's people. When we realize that God makes promises, not just to individuals, but to a community, that God's plan all along has been to unite a people who belong to him, in that context, experiencing who he is, do we realize how important it is that any understanding of what faith is and trust in Christ is cannot be separated from belonging to God's people? Uh, We'll see more on this in a moment. Uh, But we are called to repent individually of our sin. We're called to have trust in Christ and what he's done. But that always leads to a change in relationships. Being able to become a citizen of a people that belongs to God. That is how our God works. Well, we're to remember that we're outsiders. (laughs) We're to look back down the mountain. And now we're ready to realize that we now belong to Christ's new people. We now belong to Christ's new people. Look at verse 13. But now, that is what we were. We were outsiders, but, but now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Christ has, as it were, gone outside and he has brought us near to him and he's done that through his sacrifice on the cross. Look at that phrase, we've been brought near by the blood of Christ. Uh, It's uh, picturing the way in which blood needed to be shed in order for there to be forgiveness, in order for there to be reconciliation. The great picture in the Bible of that is the sacrificial lamb that the Jewish people had to offer again and again. It was a symbol of the need for a death that would deal with sin. Uh, We saw last week that uh, all of humanity is under God's wrath. We, We deserve God's judgment We have turned away from him. We have sinned in how we've lived. And that comes at a cost. God can't rub that under the carpet. But Christ was sent in order to take that judgment upon himself. That is the only way anyone can be brought near to God. Uh, But notice, um, this sacrifice, this death on a cross for his people, it's, it's not just like some sort of benevolent good that God is doing. It's It's a means to an end. He dies on a cross in order to bring us near. He wants us close. Uh, I I was picturing that, um, those scenes. Um, I do remember a couple of years ago when, it was a couple of years ago, when the Taliban took over in Afghanistan. And you've got all of those people desperate to get over the uh, the wall. And, uh, you know, it's massively clogged up. And there were people who who should be allowed to go over the top. And yet they're so far away. And you saw then kind of little groups of soldiers sent into the crowds to go and find them and to to bring them over to safety. Now again, those people had a right to to be rescued, as it were. But here we have no right. Jesus' death on the cross isn't just a sort of kind of mechanics of formula of dealing with sin. No, he does that because he wants us to have a relationship with him. He died to bring us near. I think this phrase, um, just as an aside, is, is a lovely one if we struggle with assurance and actually we feel the weight of our sin. Jesus died to bring you near. There is no sitting at the back, as it were, in his family. 
Well, Jesus is dying to bring us near isn't just a nearness to him. As we thought already, it's also a reconciling to one another. Look at verse 14. For he himself, Christ himself, is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. You see, our sin doesn't just separate us from God. It starts to fracture relationships. We, we see that at the very beginning of the Bible, Adam and Eve. And as history kind of plays itself out, humans kind of form groups that set themselves up against other groups. Um, whether it's actually building physical walls to, to keep some people out, or whether they're just social walls, as it were, to make some people feel less comfortable. The, the us and them dynamic plagues us as human beings. And you see, there's nothing like a barrier to stir up hostility. Uh, I meant to get a picture of this, um, uh, but I don't think I got it here in time. But um, just an illustration of this. Um, King's Parade... Does any, anyone know what I'm talking about when I talk about there's like a triangle on King's Parade? Does that anyone? Okay, does anyone know what that triangle is for? Chris is nodding his head. Do you know? Yeah, so do you know? I couldn't actually confirm this, so I hope this isn't folklore. Do you know who's allowed to go into that triangle? Okay, maybe someone told me something and it's not true. My understanding was that this triangle on King's Parade is sort of scholar's corner. If you've got a first-class degree... You can go and sit in this corner and eat your lunch. Does that bring any bells for anyone? No one. Okay, well, this could be made up. But imagine if that were the case. Imagine if that was why, you know, someone's probably just having me on. But imagine someone marks off a corner and says, look, no, you're allowed in here if if you've got a first-class degree. Can you imagine how much hostility that starts to turn up? People walking by thinking, hang on a minute. Why am I not allowed in there? Starting to build resentment. Look at that person showing off, you know, pride in the people who do happily eat their lunch in such a triangle. I really shouldn't have talked about that. But you can imagine a barrier (laughs) is going to create hostility. Well, at the very heart of God's temple, there was a wall. There was a barrier that was built that kept the Gentiles out, that the Jews were able to go past And I kid you not, on this wall was a sign that said something along to the effect of, if you pass this line, your death and execution is on your own head. Can you imagine the hostility that that would have caused between Jew and Gentile? In fact, a riot is caused when people think that Paul brought a Gentile into the temple. Jesus has destroyed any such barrier. How does he do it? He's divided this wall of hostility, verse 15, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. You see, what was it that made the Jews feel superior to the Gentiles that in a sense was an actual blessing and privilege? It is the fact that they were given God's laws. They were shown how to live, how to please God. The problem was that they thought they were actually able to keep the law. And because they outwardly seemed to be keeping the law more than the Gentiles, they felt like they deserved their place before God. And yet here we're told that Jesus lays aside the law. He goes on, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. You see, although the Gentiles were further away, both the Jews and the Gentiles had the same problem, even though the Jews didn't realize it. 
they needed someone who was able not just to um, kind of keep the law outwardly, but to fully fulfill the law. And that is what Jesus came to do. Uh, This phrase, speaking of creating in himself, in Christ, this new humanity, it it kind of brings back memories of Adam. Uh, Elsewhere in the New Testament, we're, we're given this comparison between Adam and Christ. Both are pictured as sort of covenant heads, people in which humanity, as it were, come under. Everyone is, as it were, under Adam, and Adam didn't keep God's law. And therefore, everyone is guilty because they are all under Adam. What we've needed throughout the Bible storyline is someone else who will actually keep God's covenants, who will actually be faithful. God made a covenant with Israel. He gave them this law, and yet they could never keep it. They were never the faithful covenant heads. No, what was needed is a, is a new covenant keeper. And that is exactly what we find in Christ. See, the law reveals our sin, but it also points us to what Jesus kept. Jesus kept this law, and he died in our place, and therefore he he kind of blows open any doors of division because he creates in himself a new humanity. If we're united to Christ, we no longer stand under God's law anymore. We stand under Christ. He has dealt with our sin, and his righteousness becomes our own. Can you see how this reconfigures these two groups? You know, the Jews thought they were closer to God. And in a sense, Paul even uses that language. They were. And yet they had a barrier between themselves and the most holy of holies. Christ coming and actually fulfilling this law on our behalf means that both barriers are wiped open. Whether Jew or Gentile, the only way to get access to God is through Christ. Look at verse 16. In one body... Christ reconciles both of them, both Jew and Gentile, to God through the cross. And it is by that that he puts to death their hostility. You see, there's no way of building a barrier between these two groups if Christ has completely leveled the floor. If he's shown that, as it were, any privilege that the Jews felt they had, any one-upmanship they felt they had, means nothing. They are just as much in need of Christ and his death on the cross. Not only that, verse 17, he, Jesus, he came and he preached peace to you who are far away. That's thinking about the Gentiles. And peace to those who are near. Not only has Christ's death made the means of access for both Jew and Gentile, Christ himself is the one who, as it were, comes to his people. The Gentiles don't hear this message, as it were, secondhand. No, Christ himself comes and preaches it to them. So, verse 18, through him, we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. There can be peace now between Jew and Gentile because there is only one door that gets us into a relationship with God. And that is Christ. Christ's death. One Spirit. Therefore, we both belong. We are both now, as it were, living under a new identity as God's new people. Um, God didn't, as it were, make it possible for the Gentiles to kind of join the Jews. That was a big issue that was being worked through in the New Testament. Should the Gentiles now start to act and live like the Jews? No. Christ has made a new people. It is not keeping of the law that makes you right with God. It is trusting in what Christ does at the cross. Now, equally we all have the same access. There's no VIP door for the particularly godly. 
There's no queue jumping for those who seem outwardly impressive. No, this levels the floor and yet welcomes us all in. Well, I wonder what some of the applications for us, the implications of this might be. And I thought of two uh, for us to start thinking about. And the first is this. This means that the church matters. The church matters. What Christ was doing on the cross had in its view us and the relationships that we experience together. How we relate to one another is either going to demonstrate what the gospel has actually done in flattening all the ways in which we might divide ourselves socially, put ourselves on a hierarchy, or it's going to undermine it. We we preach a gospel that says, no, all of us come empty-handed by grace, but really, there are those people who are more deserving than them. This church, as we'll see as we go through the book of Ephesians, it's not just a kind of means to an end that God has. It is the very end that he's doing. This is, as it were, how he displays his wisdom, bringing together people from every tribe, language, tongue, nation, social background, you know, employment, cultural background, whatever social differences we create, he's bringing them all together and he's giving them access to himself through Jesus Christ. There is relationships now that are built on what Christ has done. And this means that church is not something that we do. It's a people that we belong to. We have rights and responsibilities, as we'll think more about next week, as those who belong to this new community. And that means it's going to change how we think about one another. It's going to change how we we care, express love, how we serve, how we lay ourselves down. This is, this is, as it were, the foundation theologically for everything that we're going to be exhorted to from chapter 4 onwards. You know, when we're called to be completely humble and united in one spirit, how on earth could we be completely humble? Well, it's realizing that each and every one of us, they were, we were outsiders. But now we stand by grace in what Christ has done for us. Uh, this is one of the reasons that our home groups are so important to us. Because church is more than simply turning up to a meeting We need to cultivate relationships with one another where we truly get to know and love and give ourselves to one another and express this unity that Christ's death on the cross has achieved. The church matters. But secondly, I think we need to be aware of barrier building. We need to be aware of barrier building. See, knowing our own hearts... And in fact, knowing how much Satan would wish to undermine the gospel and a church, we should be absolutely on our guard to the fact there is going to be temptations all the time for us to build barriers between one another. For us, this Jew-Gentile divide isn't going to be the barrier I think most of us are going to be wrestling with. But there are plenty of other things that we can start to attach value to. We can say, this is more important than that. And it, it can easily create this hierarchy But no such hierarchy exists in God's people. He's come to destroy barriers. Let me suggest, too, that maybe we should, uh, maybe we could think about, and I'm sure there's loads of others. Think about the the barrier of knowledge. Uh, We live in Cambridge, a wonderful place, lots of academic knowledge, lots of learning, lots of understanding. It would be so easy to take something that is good like that 
and to start to let that act as a barrier in our community. To, as it were, praise what it is to sort of know lots of theology and be able to articulate it well. Being able to recall lots of Bible logic. You could imagine a home group situation where, you know, there are some people that we think, oh, those are the guys who know it all. You know, when those questions are asked, they give the best answers. I always feel pathetic when I, I try and answer those questions. Uh, there can be both a sort of looking down on ourselves because we're, we're wrongly elevating a certain gift. There can be a resentment. I wish I was like them. I wish I had those skills. I wish I could say it in that way. No, if, if Christ's death levels the playing field, it, it suddenly frees us from that barrier, dividing us. Yeah, some people will have minds that are able to be used in wonderful ways. But God has given other gifts too. None of that makes us any closer to God. The wonderful news of the Christian faith is whether we are a Christian of two minutes or 20 years, we are as close to our Father. Everything we've seen in the book of Ephesians is true of us. I mean, you just don't get groups in the world that exist like that. There's always a hierarchy. What about another one? What about visible godliness? Visible godliness. See, just like the Jews, um, again, many of us, we've, we've had the privilege of God's word, uh, whether directly through Christian family or just in our culture, that's shown us ways to live, things that are, are wise. And that will be a massive blessing in loads of ways. But what happens when we see people who, who look far less visibly, go, uh, visibly godly? Life feels a lot more messy. Sin feels a lot more obvious. What is our heart attitude to people in those situations? See, it's striking that one of the things that made Jesus scandalous was that he went and sat with sinners and tax collectors, people who were social outcasts, people who who others thought were really bad people. Jesus wasn't afraid to pursue them. Are we drawn in that sort of way to others? Because we realize we are in the same boat. We were outsiders. It took Christ dying on a cross for us to have access. That Jesus is one who comes and preaches peace to us and preaches peace to all those who turn to him. Um, when I was thinking about this one, I, I was reminded, um, well, I was just couldn't help but think of an example that we've uh, had in our home group um, a couple of years ago. Uh, someone came into our midst, uh, which was wonderful. We knew him for a, a really short period of time. But their life was just really messy. Just lots of brokenness that's just really sad. Um, a number of different children, a number of different kind of broken relationships, various court proceedings. And this person hadn't been a Christian for a long time, but you could just feel the messiness, the complicatedness that life was for them. And wonderfully, someone, I mean, a number of people really loved and cared for this person. But someone has been such an example of godly pursuing of this person, even now, even after they'd moved far away. Countless phone calls, countless trips in the car to love and care for this individual, to show Christ's love to them. I just found that so moving. That's what this gospel does. And none of this is in an attempt to sort of, as it were, help someone out as if they were a project. No, it flows from a heart that gets this, that all of us stand before God by grace. We were all outsiders, and yet Christ loved us through the cross.
See, we are we're outsiders who have been made a people who now belong. And I think we should just give thanks, actually, that even amongst us, there are all sorts of different people, all sorts of different backgrounds. There's a sense in which you, no one would guess how we'd all fit together except for what God has done in Christ. We should give thanks for what we experience of that right now. But we should also just pray that God would grow that. As it were, that the more diversity amongst us, the more backgrounds, the more races, the more you know, interests and hobbies coming together and united in this gospel the more glory God gets as a result. Because that's what his gospel does. Let's just have a moment's quiet and let me lead us in prayer.